Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And that's right. It's Bridget Todd, your co-host. It is not, in fact, Tom Waits. I still have laryngitis. My voice is still a little bit different than usual. Thank you for bearing with us. I'm sure it's not easy to listen to. Hopefully it will get better soon. Yes, I hope so for your sake, Bridget. I think you sound just fine. <laughs> yeah, it works for Kathleen Turner. This, it almost makes me think when celebrities get their body parts insured, like the rumor that JLo's butt is insured, can a podcaster get their throat insured? We should look into it <laughs> as soon as possible. We should look into it. We'll, we'll follow up on that. We'll follow up on that. So as many of you know, if you've been listening to this show for a long time, one of my goals in life is to do more travel. Earlier in the month, I had the opportunity to travel to France with the Afropunk podcast. Uh, unfortunately, it was not hashtag Operation Vacation because I was there for work, but it still was a really exhilarating, exciting thing to be traveling abroad alone. So today we wanted to explore what does it mean to travel alone for someone that's not a man? Annie, have you ever done any travel abroad by yourself? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I love traveling. I love traveling by myself because I feel like it it forces you to get away from yourself. And I think when you travel with friends, and I love traveling with friends too, but I think when you travel with friends, you fall into the role that you play with that friend, even if it is you, like authentically you, there's just a way that you're you're going to behave around them. But if you're by yourself, you can kind of explore different avenues of yourself. At least in my case, it forces me to be more like go out and meet the locals and see things that maybe I wouldn't have seen because if I was with my, my friends doing this, we would have done one kind of itinerary and I wouldn't have like ventured out too much. But traveling alone, you have to. <laughs> you have to go out and see what happens. And I find it really liberating. And like I've, I've experienced a lot of personal growth and learned a lot about myself and the place I was in by traveling alone. Yeah, I had, I had a similar experience. It was really cool to wake up and think anything that I want to do, I can just do it. I don't have to check in with anybody to be like, oh, do you want to do this today? Like, what did you have on the, on the plan today? Um, there was one day that I woke up in France and I really wasn't feeling well. And it was okay to just lounge around in the hotel and, you know, hang out by the pool. And no one was forcing me to go do sightseeing if I wasn't up to it, which I loved. Right off the bat, I should mention that I'm incredibly privileged and lucky to be able to travel. And I know that not everybody, that's not an easy thing for everybody um, I have a job where I can work remotely. I have enough money in the bank where I, you know, can save up for travel and it's not that big of a deal. Um, I have, my citizenship is such that going through our borders, exiting the border and coming back is not a huge thing. My body does not make it so that travel is an uncomfortable or, or an unwelcome thing. Like I don't feel unwelcome or weird when I'm sitting in an airplane going through TSA. You know, it's a drag for everybody, but it's not a, a a completely dehumanizing experience like it is for many folks out there. So I'm very privileged and lucky and not everybody has that ability. And I, I wish that we lived in a world where everyone could experience it because it really was really gratifying, but we don't. And I'm very privileged and very lucky that that can be a part of my life. 
And tra- traveling alone was great. I had a few safety concerns, but honestly, all through Paris, and then I, I took a train from Paris to Nice, that entire thing was, I, I had almost no problems. There was one time where I was pickpocketed in a park by some teens, but luckily they were teeny tiny. I mean, they were like babies. And I just, I really, I mean, I just like strong armed them. I took my phone out of my pocket and I just turned around and it was a group of them and none of them had, none of them decided to run, which is, I feel like is, if you're going to pickpocket somebody, you should probably have a plan to exit very quickly. Don't just stand around like a jerk. So I basically just grabbed them and grabbed my phone back. And then as I left, I said, you guys are really terrible criminals. If you're going to dedicate your life to a life of crime, you should get better at it. I don't think they understood me because I don't think they spoke English, but still. So that was my only, you know, all things considered, that was like the smallest thing that could have happened. And it, it, I didn't feel unsafe, but I was really surprised to learn that women are actually the largest group that does travel alone. Yeah, according to a 2014 Booking.com survey, 72% of American women are taking these solo journeys. American women ranked first in frequent solo travel and are most likely to take three trips or more in a given year. And 65% of U.S. women polled have vacationed without a partner. Okay, well, I'll say the first time I traveled by myself, (laughs) uh, my dad said to me, have you ever seen the movie Taken? Oh, my God. My dad is also obsessed with Taken. He mentions Taken all the time. We had a whole conversation about Taken. He actually referred to it as a documentary, which it is definitely is not. No. He was like, you should watch this documentary about traveling abroad before you go to France. And he was referring to Taken. Yeah, my dad did something similar. And I was like, that is a Liam Neeson like thriller movie. I'm not going to take that into account in my decision to travel alone. But So what I'm trying to get at is I think there is this fear that uh, it's not safe for a woman to travel alone. It's kind of in our society sort of uh, understood that it is an unsafe activity for women to do by themselves. But whatever the case, women are traveling alone. And from that study I just mentioned, they asked the female readership about why they travel alone and found that 46% said it was freedom, independence, and the chance to do what they want when they want. 22% said they weren't willing to wait around for others. 15% said to challenge themselves and gain confidence. Yeah, so when looking at the replies in the solo travel report around women traveling alone, basically the women polled their reasons for traveling alone really kind of fell into three buckets. One, there are more times in a woman's life when responsibilities can be restrictive. So maybe you're having a baby, maybe you're saving for a wedding. Women have these milestones in their lives are perceived as having more milestones in their lives where they're not going to be able to take time to travel. And so that's one reason why women are like, if I have the window to travel, I'm going to travel. Two, it's that women are sort of more adventurous, that they, they want to venture out, they want to see the world, and they're okay doing it alone. And then three, women are comfortable being on their own. I think that there is some truth to that, that women can be really, really okay with being their own best friend. And so those are the, those are the main three buckets of reasoning as to why these women self-reported as wanting to travel alone and being really, really okay with going on these trips by themselves. Yeah, I can think of so many instances in my life where I've had friends say, I want to travel before X milestone, like 
getting married or having kids, like wanting to do all of this travel first, which kind of ties into that responsibility thing. And then I feel like sort of what we talked about in emotional labor, traveling can be, it, there's a lot of planning involved. It doesn't have to be that way, but a lot of the times it is. And I feel like in my personal anecdotal observance, women are better at doing that. Like in my family, I travel a lot and I don't think anyone else in my family has ever left the country and they don't want to because it stresses them out thinking about all of the planning they'd have to do and just having to figure out being in a new environment. And to me, that, that sort of blows my mind. But I think that might play into it is that women, we, we sort of know we're good at all this planning stuff because we've been having to do it for a while. So we're more like, well, how is this different from XYZ appointments that I'm managing in this household or whatever? That's a good point. What's it like to be someone who is very well-traveled? Like, I know you've lived in China. I know you've lived, like, you've really traveled extensively. What is it like to be the only person in your family with that kind of background? It's it's kind of strange. I I've, Sometimes I sort of feel like almost an animal in a zoo. They'll be like, oh, Annie, she's doing this weird thing again in this country. I don't know why she keeps going places. Who knows where she is right now? It, probably... The first question I get asked when I see someone in my family I haven't seen in a while is, where are you going next? And it's kind of asked in this way as if, I don't know, like I'm a very eccentric weirdo. Um, <laughs> so a lot of the traveling I've done has been with internships, like through college. So a lot of times I was working, and I remember my advisor asked me whether or not my... Um, the rest of my family liked to travel because she'd seen I'd been to X number of places. And she was doing research on genetics, predetermining, like playing a role in whether or not you liked traveling. So I thought that was really interesting. And I've always kind of wanted to reconnect with her and see what what the uh, her research bore out from that, if it if it did at all. But yeah, I'm definitely sort of the, the local weirdo in the family. <laughs> like, oh, Georgia's not good enough for you? Not good I, enough for Queen Annie? I do get that attitude sometimes, like, don't you think that the United States is so beautiful? And I say, yes, and I've traveled around the United States, and there's so many things to see here. And in fact, in like a, recent years, I've been trying to see more of the United States. But just because I think the United States is beautiful, I don't think means that I don't want to see anywhere else. Yeah, I'm not extensively well-traveled outside of the U.S. I've traveled a lot in the U.S. I've been really all over and it's been great. But in terms of travel abroad, it's interesting these sort of cultural hangups we have around it because I've definitely encountered that attitude that, oh, the United States isn't good enough for you, whatever. And you'll have to tell me if you've seen it, but this new sort of cultural attitude that if you don't travel, if you don't have a passport, then you're somehow not cool or not with it. That, you know, this idea that oh, if you don't have a passport, if you're not going to Bali or whatever, you know, you're just some country bumpkin. Like, I, 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 don't, know, I don't know. It's interesting how travel kind of becomes this weird thing that says something about you and is not just a pastime, is not just a thing that people do. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I haven't seen so much of the attitude of, like, if you don't, travel, then you're not cool. But I have seen some people who think that 
they're a little judgmental if you've never left the country, if you've never seen anything outside of it, it's kind of like a hoity-toity attitude. I've seen some of that. And yeah, it's just sort of an odd thing to put all of this, all of these hangups on. Because it's not for everyone. Absolutely, it's not for everyone. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess we do that with a lot of things as well. But it, it just seems odd to me that it's become something that we make these snap judgments on. Yeah, I remember there was some celebrity who was in the press a couple years ago for having an outreach program for underprivileged kids in America that was going to help them get passports. And on the one hand, I was like, great, and that's, it's good for kids to have passports. But then part of me thought, you know, if I was an underprivileged kid, were there other, other things that would make a more immediate impact in my life? Like, travel is great, and if you could do it, I think that you should do it. But it's not for everybody. There are other ways to enrich yourself. There are other ways to experience culture. And travel, let's be real, like not everybody can afford to travel. There's this meme that, oh, for the price of that iPhone or those shoes, you could have gone to wherever. And I think those are so stigmatizing because travel just does not fit into everyone's lifestyle. Even though I think it's great, it isn't the only way to be culturally enriched. Oh, yeah, I agree 100%. And going back to, to women traveling by themselves. The statistics are limited, but an estimated 32 million single American women traveled at least once in the last year. And about three in 10 did so five times or more, according to the Travel Industry Association. Older women are a growing group of solo travelers as well. According to um, 44% of agents polled, most of their clients taking solo trips are 55 years of age or older, followed by those 45 to 55 that's about 29%, and then 35 to 45, 18%, 25 to 34, 9%, and 18 to 24 years of age, 0.4%. See, I love this. When I was researching for this episode, I found so many great communities of women who, who do travel, and so many of them were older women saying, you know, I always wanted to see, you know, Paris before I die. I always wanted to see this or that before I died. And they often said things like, oh, there was always something, you know, it was my kid, like I had to do this for my family. I feel like women are so likely to sacrifice for others, sacrifice what they want to do to help others, whether it's their family, their partner. And I was so pleased that these women had this sort of better late than never spirit, you know, and I was really inspired by that. My like experience with travel was very similar, even though I'm, I don't consider myself an older woman, but I'm sure somebody out there does. My best friend, I sometimes call him my platonic life partner. Like we're basically, we're each other's people, if you know what I mean. And he was living in Paris working on the French election. And he was like, Bridget, you should definitely come out, spend a, spend a month in Paris. At the time, I was sort of in between jobs, but I actually had the money I could have gone and I had a place to stay. And, you know, I was in a, I was in a place where I was giving so much of myself to others. And this was like going to Paris is something I really, really, truly wanted to do. And it just did not seem like something I could do. And, you know, I thought about my life here in D.C. and the various responsibilities that I felt like I had to take on specifically for other people. And I didn't go. And I don't know if you ever watched that show, The Hills, but one of the plot lines of The, of, of the Hills was that this character is supposed to go to Paris to, to work for French Vogue, and she doesn't go. And the like running joke of the show is, you'll always be the girl who didn't go to Paris. And I was very much like, I am the girl who didn't go to Paris. Like, never be the girl who doesn't go to Paris. And 
you know, I did kind of have that better late than never feeling when I was there of the person who put off what they wanted to do because of other people, things I felt like I had to do for them. And I put myself not even just second, like third, fourth, fifth, sixth. When I was in France, I was like, I am solidly a different person. And I hate to be the kind of person who goes to France once and comes back, you know, all, all spiritual and poetic and shit. Like that's, as y'all probably know, that is very much not my steez, not my vibe at all. But I did have a moment of when I was alone under the Eiffel Tower, I spent an hour at night with my headphones under the Eiffel Tower. So I had this overwhelming moment of, I can't believe I am in Paris. I can't believe I made it here. In a million years, I never would have thought that some, you know, some little black girl from the same town in the South would be sitting under the Eiffel Tower watching it glow. Like, I really did have a moment of, oh my God, like, this is a perfect life moment. And I'm so lucky to have it. So maybe I am the kind of person who goes to France once and like comes back and they're Joan Didion all of a sudden. (laughs) Maybe that is me. But what I'm saying is that it's important. And the idea that older women are not even finding that space in themselves, carving out that space and saying, I want to see X, Y, Z. I've spent my entire life giving to others. I'm taking this for myself. I think that is so empowering. I do too. And um, my mom has sort of timidly asked me, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about traveling and you know, perhaps I'd like to go. And she's sort of listing off these places and I'm trying to uh, encourage her to, to travel because I think, I think she would like it. I'm just kind of really thrilled that she is considering this idea that I don't think she ever thought was going to be a possibility for her. I have a very similar thing with my mom. My mom will often say things to me like, oh, I wish I could see Paris. I wish I could see Italy. I would love to do this before I die. Like, it's, it's a shame I won't be able to see it. And I always say, mom, you can do it. Like, do it, do it. And when I was in Paris, I called my mom and we had this, we have kind of a weird relationship, not to get too into it. But one of the things that she said on the phone to me that I was sort of struck by was, I never got to do those things. I never got to see Paris. I never got to jet around the world. And on the one hand, I don't think that she meant it in a sad way, but I felt sort of sad. But also I think it was sort of hopeful that like my mom has spent her life trying to give her kids more than she had. And so on the one hand, it was sad. But on the other hand, I don't think she was sad at all that she was able to make sure her kids got to see Europe. And that was something that she wanted to do, but never could do. So it was a little bit bittersweet, but we should, moms should travel. You know, if you want to travel, look at the, the pictures and the stories of older women who've always wanted to travel and then do it when they're older. It is so inspiring. Yes. It is. It, it makes my heart happy <laughs> that that's happening and that maybe that's a possibility for, for my mom and for me when I get older. But to go back to that question of our dads bringing up Taken as a documentary, uh, <laughs> are women safe traveling abroad? We do have some numbers around that, but first we're going to stop for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, yeah, women traveling alone. I certainly remember getting so much either advice, like, please to not do it. It got to the point that I wouldn't tell my parents I was leaving the country until I was in the airport about to board because they would try so hard to convince me, please don't go. Please don't do it. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. But again, that, that's like what you were saying, how your family sort of sees you as this oddity. They probably think, what's she doing? Where's she going? Yeah. I have a really funny story. I was going out, like the first time I traveled by myself, I was going to try to document, because at the time I was like majoring, part of my major was in languages, and I was going out to document this dying language in Australia, and it was in the middle of nowhere. Like you have to, it's flooded, you can't get there by car, you have to take like a one-person jet type thing out there. I get there, but like this guy I've never met comes up to me, and he says, are you Annie? And I said, yes. And he said, you should really call your parents more. Because <laughs> they'd somehow gotten a hold of the, like one phone that worked in that town and <laughs> called him and left a message. And I was so just thrown by it. That <laughs> what is, is happening? First of all, kudos to your parents for their, yes. like, I mean, that's it's so impressive. I, I was shocked. And it was so difficult. There was no internet there. The phone barely worked. And just to dial out, I remember having to dial like 20 numbers and then the phone number. It was really complicated. So I'm impressed that they somehow <laughs> managed to find the number to call, to leave the message. The guy who said that to me, he said they like called, I think he was like the fifth person in the line of people they had called to get to that point. So Wow. And was he some sort of official or was he just some guy that happened to get his number? He was he worked at the airport. I hesitate to say airport because it was kind of just a one room building, but he worked there. He like flew he was one of the people that flew in and out. This is like the Simpsons episode about Australia where the kid has to get on his bike and ride like seven miles to get to his neighbor's house. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is kind of like that. But you found a really good article about this from the New York Times, right? Yeah, I cannot recommend this article enough. It was in the New York Times from 2014. It's called Women Alert to Travel's Darker Side. It's by Lauren Wolf, who is a columnist who is very well-traveled. And basically, it's about whether or not women are safe abroad, and even sort of the conversation that we have around travel safety and sort of how problematic and skewed that conversation is in general. Yeah, a quote from the article, experts I spoke to say they cannot know whether attacks on female tourists are actually increasing. Hard numbers are difficult to come by. None of these groups, UN Women, an agency focused on gender equality, the United States State Department, and non-governmental organizations, our NGOs, keep data on violence against female tourists. The British Foreign Office, however, does release statistics on how many Britons request consular assistance after a sexual attack. In 2012 to 2013, 310 people requested assistance, with 138 saying they had been raped and 172 sexually assaulted an increase of 9 and 12% for the year, respectively, according to the figures from the office's British Behavior Abroad report. But those figures are hardly the end of the story. A number of experts tell me that it is possible that violence is on the rise in part because more women than ever are traveling alone and are venturing ever farther off the beaten path. The point this article makes that I think is so salient is that the conversation that we're having around women and travel and being abroad and safety is sort of not the right conversation. The real question that seems to illustrate whether or not a country is safe for a woman alone is how safe local women are in those countries. Like, are local women being raped? Is there a culture that says that sexually assaulting someone is okay? 
Is there a macho culture where women are sort of supposed to be the property of men? Those are the things that are more likely to indicate whether or not a woman traveling in a a specific country is going to be safe or not. But that is often the conversation that goes overlooked because we are so focused on high profile incidents of violence against, quote, non-local women, which I think is supposed to be sort of a euphemism for white or at least Western, right? So if you are a white traveler going abroad and you are the victim of violence, that is going to be a high profile thing. And so the conversation then becomes about, well, is it safe for Americans or British people to go to India or to Mexico or whatever? And the real conversation, and in fact, this article argues indicator is how are local women being treated? So if you go someplace where local women are treated badly, you are probably more likely to experience violence and it is more likely to be unsafe. But because we don't have those conversations and when a local woman is the victim of violence, it's underreported and less likely to be covered within the media and solved when compared to a white or Western traveler, that we just don't have that conversation. And so that the whole question that we are asking around whether or not it's safe for women, women to travel is the wrong question. Yeah, and going back to that Times piece, here's another quote that illustrates that. Every expert I spoke to, whether in India, Mexico, Brazil, or elsewhere, said that cases of violence against international female tourists are not only more likely to make the news, they are also more likely to see justice than cases involving local women. Yeah, and so I just think that is something to keep in mind. Like The very conversation around safety and travel is sort of skewed and that if you are a white or Western traveler going to a non-white or non-Western country and something happens to you, I almost feel like we don't have the language to adequately have the conversation around global safety. The article makes that point so well, right? That Mexican women in Mexico who are the victims of violence, it's massively underreported, massively underinvestigated. But if a Western or white traveler goes missing, that is all we would hear about the narrative that that fuels is that, oh, it's not safe for a Western woman alone in Mexico, when in fact that might not even be true statistically. The truth is something more along the lines of this is a dangerous place for women, all women writ large. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. When I was in college, I worked for two organizations that were supposed to set people up with internships in um, countries all over. And I was always kind of uh, surprised at just this attitude I would encounter a lot, usually from parents and not so much the kids or young adults looking at traveling of, like, they can't go to that country. It's not safe. And I, I would be like, well, what makes you say that? And it would just be like this one case that they heard about on the news. And they didn't have, like, a lot of facts around it. They just remembered, like, I remember that one white lady went missing. And I'd be like, well, I can't really... <laughs> help you there. You don't, you're not giving me any details. I'm just telling you what I know. And I don't think that you should base your whole decision off of one story you can barely remember. Yeah. I mean, that happens, right? And part of it is understandable where when one person goes missing in a, in a country, it's such a media frenzy and the media plays into it. They love, I mean, I used to work, I'm talking about myself. Like I used to work at a news organization and we loved it when pretty white girls went missing because it meant their picture on TV. It meant her name was a hashtag. It meant her parents on TV, her soccer picture from like high school on TV. And those things drove ratings. And so, you know, part of me can't blame those parents because if that's all you see, it gives the perception that, oh, it's happening a lot. And one, that might not be true. And two, the conversation could be, it's happening a lot because this place is unsafe for all women 
And it's not just unsafe for your daughter who is traveling there. And so it's it's sort of can fuel a, a myopic view of the actual situation. Yeah. And there have been a handful of these kind of high profile deaths of female travelers. And sadly, those incidents were full of victim blaming. When two young Argentinian women, Maria Coni and Marina Menegazzo, were killed while backpacking in Ecuador, many commenters asked why they were traveling alone without a man, even though they weren't alone. <laughs> they were traveling together. But people were like, well, what were they? They had no business being out there without a man, which is so frustrating. It is frustrating. It just sort of assumes that if there's no man in the mix, you're basically alone. You're alone. You could be with a group of 10 people, but if there's no man, you're alone. Yeah. <laughs> you need a man to validate the group. Otherwise, uh, what are you even doing out there? Exactly. In response to this kind of victim-blaming criticism, the phrase Viajo Sola, I Travel Alone, trended on Twitter with more than 5,000 women using the hashtag to discuss their experiences. One woman poignantly wrote, Traveling is freedom. Freedom has no gender. Another wrote, I want to travel alone without the fear. I'll be punished for it. Yeah, that's, that's poignant. That's poignant. There was another high-profile act of violence. 33-year-old New Yorker Sari Sierra was killed in Turkey during her very first trip abroad. The man who was convicted of murdering her said the attack began after she rebuffed his attempt to kiss her. Um, now, this sounds really, really scary, but, and it is really scary, but if you pay attention to the news or, you know, are a human woman in the world— you know that that experience, a man feeling slighted after you won't kiss him, won't flirt with him, won't give you his number, that happens in the United States also. It's not confined to Turkey. And so the very same thing could have quite possibly happened to this woman in New York. The common criticism that you were just talking about, Annie, of like, oh, what were they doing there alone? That kind of thing. The same thing could happen if she was five blocks from her apartment in New York. And so that criticism really just doesn't make sense. Like that idea of, what were you doing alone in Turkey? You know, you're kind of asking for, you're bringing on yourself. That could have happened on her street and in fact has happened to women in their own hometowns. Yeah, for sure. And something else that we found telling is that the State Department's official guideline for women traveling abroad points out that the fact that women are conditioned to be polite can put us at risk. The site says... Don't feel the need to be overly polite if you are bothered by someone. While it may seem rude to be unfriendly to a stranger, creating boundaries to protect yourself is important. Use facial expressions, body language, and a firm voice to fend off any unwanted attention. Yeah, uh, I wish it were that simple. <laughs> yeah, I also wish it were that simple. I mean, clearly her rebuffing her murderer's advances did not work. And I think it's interesting that you know, the State Department acknowledges that women, we've been conditioned and trained to be polite, to smile. If someone offers you help with your bag, you take it. If someone offers you a drink, you smile, you take it. They acknowledge that we live in that sort of world and that people use that. They use these norms to victimize people. But again, I wish it were that simple. I wish that you could just say, don't kiss me, get away from me, and, and have that be something that you could always affirm. I think nine times out of 10, that kind of response can be useful. So I want to give like women out there permission to be rude, especially if you're on vacation alone. It's okay to trust your instinct and it's okay to, you know, be a if you have to, if it's going to keep you safe. But let's not pretend that that's always a safe option as well, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. I've mentioned it before on the show, but I have a whole spiel I can go to about de-escalation later episode. A piece in The Guardian pointed out the double standard in how Sierra's death was portrayed than when men are killed while traveling. One headline read, Americans' death in Turkey puts focus on solo travel. Compare that with a headline about the death of Harry Divert, a 32-year-old U.S. citizen killed while traveling alone in Mexico. Quote, the untimely death of world traveler Harry Dervert. When Australian Lee Hudswell died after an accident while tubing down a river in Laos, the press reported fatal end to Lee's overseas adventure. So neither of those are bringing up that they were a solo traveler. They're talking about like cool things that both of them were doing compared to how Sierra died in Turkey. Exactly. Something else I wanted to mention is that rape and sexual assaults in India have actually had an impact on tourism from women and others in the country. According to The Guardian, the number of foreign tourists arriving in India dropped by 25% during the last three months of the year, largely because of fears about the risk of sexual assault, according to an industry survey. The number of female tourists fell by 35% compared with the same period last year, with Indian tour operators reporting many cancellations from January to March following the fatal gang rape of a psychotherapist on a Delhi bus last December. So, yeah, in, in countries where it isn't safe for women, I mean, it's having an impact on their, on their tourism dollars. And so this is obviously something that is a real concern, but the conversation that we're having around it, it seems to be focused around victim blaming and punishing women for their choice to travel on their own and not actually tackling the problem. Yeah, I have definitely sort of gotten um, a reaction almost like when I'll tell people I I went to India and some people would bring this up. And it it was the strangest thing. Some people would be like, almost nothing happened to me while I was there. But almost like before I'd gone, like, that's on your head. Whatever happens, you're being stupid and you're not realizing like how dangerous it is for you to just go out and... (laughs) Just like pre-victim blaming me with like nothing had happened. But some usually dudes would just give me this attitude like, well, that's on you. Wow. <laughs> like, okay. That's, yeah, it's like, it's like pre-crime, but it's pre-victim blaming. I know. And it was almost like, like a righteous anger. They knew so much more than me. Hope you like getting murdered because that's what's going to happen. And it's going to be your fault. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And it was a little shocking. You should always research, if you're traveling alone, research a country that you're going to. Take that time, put in that effort, know what you should be doing to be a responsible and safe tourist. But (laughs) I don't think you should, like, point the finger at someone traveling alone. Like, well, that was just... And let's be real. The person who is to blame is the murderer, is the rapist. It's not the woman who did nothing but go to India. It's the rapist. I know. It was a strange experience for sure. And and a lot of people like to point out like almost morbidly, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? As if they can shock you out of going. Yeah, shock you out of sticking with a choice that you've made. That's yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And it's strange. And again, I totally, you should know what you're getting into, I think. I think that's just wise. Neither of us is saying go head first you'll be fine. We're saying like take precautions, all of that, but don't let this fear of what could happen 
stop you from doing what you want to do. The end of the New York Times piece that we've been referencing actually sums this up quite nicely, I think. She writes, summing up what seems to be the underlying sentiment of many female travelers I spoke to, Jocelyn Oppenheim, an architectural designer in New York who has tracked extensively through India, said, bad things can happen, but bad things can happen when you get into a taxi in New York City. So this idea that you are asking for trouble if you go abroad, anything can happen anywhere, right? Something bad can happen to you a block from your house. If you decided that you want to go abroad alone and you're a, you know, a, a woman traveler, you've not made a choice to put yourself in danger. That's just not true. Yeah. There is also a risk if you're LGBTQ that we should talk about. And there are still many places in the world, including many countries in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, and the Pacific, as well as Russia, where laws or social customs create an unwelcoming and unsafe environment for travelers who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. More than 75 countries consider consensual same-sex sexual relations a crime, and in about 10 countries, a person could be put to death for being gay, according to the United States State Department. Yeah, so if you're traveling to one of these places and you're LGBTQ, a good idea, and it's, it's unfortunate that this is the reality, but it would be a safe thing to do to research what the laws and sort of local attitude is around that because you don't want to find yourself in a situation where you could potentially encounter something unsafe because of like local attitudes and local customs that you, know, you didn't know. Yeah. According to a first-of-its-kind survey about the travel needs of trans travelers for trans folks, travel safety is their number one concern. 700 transgender people across 48 states were queried on their traveling habits. Approximately 80% said a destination's perceived safety influences whether they visit or not. And that makes a lot of sense when you consider that trans folks are at higher risk for violence just in general, whether you're traveling or not. But what's really f***ed up is that we don't even really have hard data around that because it's not actually tracked. The number of harmful episodes, arrests, prosecutions, and deaths involving gay, bisexual, or transgender travelers globally is not tracked. This is according to Renato Sabadini, the executive director of the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Trans and Intersex Association, a nonprofit rights group in Geneva. He says that even though the overall trend is positive, some countries have moved forward while others have moved back. India decriminalized same-sex sexual activities between men in 2009, but reversed that decision in 2013. And of course, even getting to your destination can feel unsafe if you're trans or gender nonconforming because of gender requirements on passports and mishandled TSA screenings. The entire conversation around what it takes to feel safe while traveling, it's a completely nuanced conversation and it has all these different intersections, whether you are trans or gender nonconforming or queer or present in certain ways. And, you know, it's just we're not, I don't feel like we're having a conversation that takes into account all of these various intersections and what they mean for your safety when you travel abroad. But we do have some tips for you after this quick break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So something that we were just talking about off mic is even beyond the conversation of whether or not traveling alone is safe, it's really this idea that as women, if we travel alone, something is wrong with you. Like, it's a sad thing. I mentioned that when I was in France, I didn't really have any major safety concerns. But one thing I did get a lot of was people openly and outright pitying me for being in France alone. Yes, yes, I, I get that. So much too. I, um, 
I have like close friends of mine. When I was saying I like traveling alone, she responded back with, "But then you have no one to share it with." And then I had another friend <laughs> ask me, "Well, who takes your pictures?" As if it's the saddest thing in the world that I could want to do this by myself. Well, I can give folks a little、uh, sneak peek on our on our solo travel tips that I learned when I was in France, which is that if you are out traveling alone and you need someone to take a picture of you, ask a teenage girl. Teenage girls are really good at taking pictures of other people. They don't mind standing there for a while. They'll do different lighting, like. Somebody was like, "Oh, your tag is out." The best pictures that I got of myself when I was alone in France were all taken by teenage girls. See, there you go. We don't need to travel with someone <laughs> just for the pictures. I can't believe that was their <laughs> their worry. Like, who's gonna take your picture? Also, ever heard of a selfie stick? <laughs> there are options. There are other other avenues available. Yeah, when I was traveling alone, the kind of questions that I got, I got, I got someone asked, "Did you just go through a divorce or a breakup?" You know, the question is like, "What are you running from?" or "Who are you running from?" It couldn't just be that I'm traveling alone for fun. It's assumed that I'm eat, pray, loving my way through some disaster, or I'm having some sort of breakdown. And you know what? Maybe I was having a breakdown. That is my business. But women can travel and not be going through some sort of. You know, personal crises. Just because I'm just because I'm in France alone doesn't mean I'm running away from some guy, even if I actually am. <laughs> right. I feel like I got a lot of、um, a pity where they were like, "Oh, poor dear, she doesn't realize how sad and alone she is." Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm faking it to myself. I'm lying to myself, and I just don't realize. As if they could see a part of me that I couldn't. And that I didn't realize how sad and pathetic I was. There's nothing worse than the implication that you are lying to yourself about something because it's the reality is too sad. It's I've got that feeling. I got that vibe from so many people though. And then to be, I, I like hiking a lot, and you know, you reach the summit, and I like to just sit and enjoy the view, maybe self reflect, and I would get these like sad, pitying glances, and I would hear people kind of. And whisper like, "Is she alone? Is she by herself? Why does that? Why is that worth you whispering to whoever you're with about? I don't understand." Yeah, shouldn't shouldn't they be quietly reflecting instead of worrying about what you're doing? Right. Oh, I'm not bothering you. <laughs> Let me enjoy the view. And I gotta tell you, like I said, sitting under the Eiffel Tower at midnight, watching it glitter, completely by myself. I was so happy. I was literally sobbing. I was listening to My Bloody Valentine and Kate Bush on headphones, and I was so happy. I was literally crying. They probably would be thinking, "Oh, she's crying because she's alone." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, Bridget. Though. No, it was. It was. It was. I mean, I, again, I hate to be the kind of person who leaves the. I mean, I. I, I really. I'm not gonna lie. I. I think of myself as like a cool sort of person, but I. The second that I was in France, I was like. Nina Simone on the streets of Paris, right? I was reflecting and writing in journals, and I, I used to sort of jokingly, lovingly tease my friends who would go on trips and come back and act like they were, you know, a spiritual guru or something afterward. I feel like it did change me. Like I know that's uncool to admit. I feel like it did really. I felt a shift. Hate this. I hate even. I'm like cringing thinking about it. But you know, I thought about 13 year old Bridget who was a lot of times was really sad and really miserable and. Never felt like I fit in. I thought I was gonna have a really sad, depressing life where I never left my really small hometown. 
And for such a long time, I thought, I'll never see anything beyond the corners of Midlothian, Virginia. And if you live in Midlothian, it was different when I lived there. Now it's a little bit better, but it was different then. And I, I had a real moment alone under the Eiffel Tower where I was just like that little girl inside of me. I was like, we made it. We're here. We made it. I hate myself for feeling this way because it's just so cheesy, but it's true. It is true. And I feel like it's it's such a great reminder of how much more is out there. You can forget. You can get lost in your own world and forget that there's so much more to see. And every time I travel, I have this moment, usually like at night where I look up and you remember being a kid and looking up at the sky and just feeling kind of like so small and so connected at the same time, which yes, sounds really terrible. But I have moments like that. And it's such, it's a great reminder that there's there's a whole world out there. That's so real. I'll show, this is the last cheesy thing I'll say is that, so when I was in Nice, I love the beach. I love swimming. I love the water. Um, I spent an entire day just like swimming at the beach and listening to music on the beach and beaching it up. And my favorite moment was these three little girls. They were the cutest things I've ever seen. They did not speak a lick of English. They were probably like four or five. I kept asking, where's your mom? Where's your mom? And they just kept smiling at me. They forced me to play with them in the water. They drank all of my water, ate all of my cheese. By the end of the outing, like we were best friends and we didn't speak the same language at all. But I remember thinking, you know, I'm connecting with these three little kids in Nice, France. Neither of us speaks the same language. At one point, one of them said Moana and we sang a little bit of Moana and like we both understood, we all understood Moana. You know, the world is huge, but also small and four-year-old little babies who only speak French can find an American who cannot understand them and get her to play with them in the water and sing Moana with them and eat all of her cheese. (laughs) I love that so much. That's great. And yeah, women should not miss out on these experiences just because we're women, just because society tells us that for men, it's okay to be a rugged explorer. But for a woman, you know, either you're bringing your, your own death on yourself or you're like a sad, pathetic wretch if you, if you dare to travel alone. By living in a society that pushes these notions, we're telling women that it's okay to miss out on those kinds of experiences that really can shape us. Yeah, The Guardian puts this really well. Travel has historically been, and to an extent still is, seen as a natural, bold activity for men and a risky or frivolous pursuit for women. As with so many other forms of low-level sexism, the knock-on impact is enormous. At a local level, curtailment of travel can prevent women from accessing health care, visiting family, or taking job opportunities. When we restrict women's wider freedom, we also curtail their ability to broaden their horizons and acquire valuable language skills. We do have some tips if you're planning on traveling solo. Uh, Number one, give someone back home your itinerary. This is always fun for me because, again, I travel in secret now for my family. But (laughs) I can always give me your itinerary. Perfect. I'll be your person if you need it. Perfect. Yeah, because for a while I would just send it to them after I'd already left. But then again, they're going to find someone to call and some random dude will come up to me and be like, you should call your parents more. (laughs) Okay. Along those lines, take pictures of all your documents and put them on a locked site like Dropbox that you can access from any computer. Schedule a regular check-in with someone back home. Bring emergency contraception in case you're someplace where you can't get it easily. Uh, similarly, uh, make sure your medications, whatever they may be, if you need them, are filled out. You don't need to get new ones while you're traveling. 
And yeah, trust your instincts. Do some research. If you want to go and you have the means to go, we really recommend it. Yes, and you can come back and write me a long, cheesy email about how spiritual your journey was. And I will love it. Oh, we (laughs) would love to hear those. And pictures, too. Always pictures. So, yeah, that brings us uh, to the end of this episode and to our listener mail. And uh, we're starting out with an international one, one from New Zealand in response to our episode on the New Zealand Prime Minister. Rachel wrote, I thought I'd fill you in on my own New Zealand experience. I'm a born and bred Kiwi and a working mother like my own mom before me. My boy is now eight and a half, so that sets the timeline. When he was born, paid parental leave was 14 weeks duration, and in New Zealand, this is paid by the government. By 2020, it will be 26 weeks long, thanks to Jacinda. Let's just say that I'd rather pay high taxes than not have this kind of support for all parents. Ditto healthcare and accident compensation, but that's another story. This is the part you may find surprising. It's actually very frowned upon for mothers to not take maternity leave here and highly unusual to only take the paid parental leave period. And it's not for the mother's sake or health. It's because most people believe moms and babies should be bonding. Employers must hold your position open for 12 months. Most women take at least six months. If you take less, there is a very standard view that you're a cold, hard, selfish bitch who shouldn't be having children if your job is so important to you. Sad, but true. It's definitely not common for moms to go back full-time straight away, and this is what Jacinda faces. Not that she's a bad prime minister for taking six weeks off, but that she's a bad mother for only taking six weeks off. And in reality, both. There are still biases and assumptions made in New Zealand about family dynamics. For example, my husband was the main caregiver and point of contact for child-related things until he got his dream job after four years of study, but during that time I had to train people to call him and not me. Everyone still assumes mom is the person to call because the woman must be the main caregiver. Given a choice of two names and numbers, they will pick the female every time. To this day, I earn more than double and work 10 hours more per week than my husband. He does the school run and makes the school lunch and does significantly more than most dads. He's still the main contact on everything, yet they still call mom. I had a call last year while in business in North America where the school asked if I could come collect my son who had fallen ill. Um, not today, no. It's certainly completely normal in New Zealand for women to work, for couples to buy a house and have a baby, and then take another decade to marry, if ever. And it's generally assumed that most women aged 25 to 40 will take time off for babies at some point. Yes, there are still all employers, but our labor laws, no pun intended, are pretty robust. However, it's still not normal for dads to be the primary caregiver and not normal for the mom to be the main earner or working longer hours than the dad. And to me, this is the revolutionary thing about Jacinda and Clark. Not having a baby while in office, but saying dads can do it too. Dads are parents too. They're not masculine arm candy capable only of making money. They are practical, caring, and able to multitask. And that it's no big deal. Women working does not emasculate men because there is nothing more manly than a capable dad. Who cares where the money comes from? It took my husband years to come to grips with not earning, and I was afraid to be too bossy or to fix stuff myself or to do traditional man tasks for fear of making him feel emasculated. Clark is doing as much for feminism here as Jacinda is by saying, hey, dads, there's nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home dad so that your wife can continue to be very successful. It's okay choosing the dad life 
as your new career or choosing what's best for your family over your own sense of what man should or should not do. Clark is providing an important role model for men, which directly makes it easier for women to be powerful and successful. As is Jacinda by saying, hey, there are two parents. They are doing this as a team, and I believe they are also doing a lot for feminism as a team. Well, that was so cool to hear from somebody from New Zealand about your experience and the politics there. There are also pictures, and they were great. Yeah, I also, it hadn't even occurred to me the idea that he is also modeling that it's okay to be a stay-at-home dad. It's okay doing feminism as a team. I love that. That's such a great aspirational thing for couples. Um, Her letter also reminds me of this really messed up thing that I was just reading about. This trend piece about how the sort of trendy thing that coworkers are giving to their colleagues when they have a baby is to donate some of their sick time so they can have actual maternity leave. And it was framed as, oh, it's this cool thing that women are doing, donating sick time so that women who have babies can hang out with their kid. And I was like, oh my God, that's actually awful. Like what kind of dystopian nightmare is this that we have such a messed up system that people are donating their own sick time so that people can just spend time with their babies? Yeah, that should not, (laughs) that is not a good thing. That is a sad thing, at least to me. I understand like the people doing it that is like a kind choice, but it shouldn't be that that is what we're relying on. <laughs> yeah, that's messed up. It, it was really interesting, like, because it's so different from the United States, what she was describing. Like, we do have that kind of looking down on women for not spending more time with their kids, but also we don't have maternity leave. So it's just an interesting uh, difference between the two countries. In an effort to save my obviously bedraggled voice, Annie, can you hit us with another letter? I can. Tim wrote in response to our episode on the men of Me Too, One thing I want to say is that while I deeply appreciate the work Mr. Cruz is doing and I sincerely admire his strength and courage, I think it's worth pointing out that being as handsome and physically powerful as he is might provide him with a little more societal protection than men that are already perceived as less masculine. I love that he is speaking out. I love that he is examining masculinity from his successful, knowledgeable position. This is not a but, it is a yes and. I know he's being attacked publicly and is taking a substantial risk by speaking out. As a smaller, less attractive guy, I know that I would have to speak about an experience like this differently or I'd be opening myself up for retribution or relegation that I have less outward masculine manifestation to fend off. Does that make sense? It seems that one of the ways masculinity works to preserve the status quo is by attacking dissent in such a way that it demands a traditional masculine response, almost a doubling down on manness. A large, muscular, successful, attractive man already has a significant amount of masculine cachet. I love that Mr. Cruz is using that cachet and his position to critically examine masculinity. Way to go, Terry. I just know from my own experience that it can be very difficult to be critical of masculinity without needing to resort to gendered demonstration or defense, sometimes quite literally. As we continue to rethink or even dismantle masculinity, I think it's important to look at the ways masculinity polices itself and to ask how those perhaps more vulnerable in the hierarchy can fight against it without perpetuating its patterns. Yeah, I really want to deeply, deeply, deeply thank you, Tim, for this letter. It really does a nice job of examining an aspect of the situation that I actually didn't even think about, how as a handsome, successful, kind of beefy guy, he does get a different reaction in that men who don't necessarily fit that bill would have to go about it very differently. It's just, a, it's just another interrogation of, of 
kind of the trip of patriarchy and how so invested in masculinity looking a certain kind of way, performing masculinity in a certain kind of way. Yeah, I loved this as well because I think a lot of times there's just so much at play and because it's so complicated an issue, I think it gets reduced. But it is a nuanced conversation. There is a lot going into the conversations around it and I think it's good that we are talking about those nuances and how they might impact masculinity, um, the whole thing. Um, Yeah, it was really enlightening. So thanks to both of them for writing in. You too can write us. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or if social media is more your thing, you can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks as always to our producer, Kathleen Quillian, and thanks to you for listening.